arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Well, I was just thinking, and that can be dangerous. I spent the years between 1963 and 1976 believing that Lee Harvey Oswald, a lone nut, murdered the President of the United States with a mail-order Italian rifle. I knew nothing about the anti-Castro militants and the soup of CIA, Army Intelligence, Mafia, and Soldiers of Fortune floating around the mixture. When I saw films of Oswald handing out pro-Castro leaflets, I saw a cold-hearted radical. But as we have seen in the preceding episode from Patch and Sherry's surveillance, the pamphlets had the rabid anti-Castro Guy Bannister's business address stamped on the handout. What's going on here? We were sold a bill of goods. For me, it was the peeling back of the onion. It occurred over great lapses in time. Only in the 70s did I read books that pointed toward the Mafia, a limited hangout where a portion of the plot was revealed because of a congressional hearing pending and looking into the assassination. Yet all this material that we have just listened to last week about the Oswald Ferry Shaw trip to Clinton and Jackson, Louisiana, was already discovered in the Garrison investigation. Apparently it takes a long time to raise the public consciousness. During those congressional hearings in 1978, the testimony of Robert McEwen is a nexus of what was really going on here, the framing of Oswald. I don't know who sent Oswald to McEwen. Jack Ruby ran guns and so did McEwen to Cuba. Listen to what Oswald says to McEwen in the next episode. And Nagel, always shadowing Oswald. And then he washed his hands like Pontius Pilate and permitted the deadly deed to proceed. Before I take liberties and regurgitate a massive amount of information from Pilatus, it should be absorbed very slowly as the onion is continuously peeled back. My pontificating is over. The fourth episode of Return to Dallas begins now. Lafayette Postal Annex, New Orleans, Louisiana, Thursday, August 29th, 1963, 9.35 a.m. Patch placed the return envelopes in Newton's hand. The kid jogged across the street and bounded up the post office steps. Then he entered the building. As he stared at the post office, Patch now understood why they were paying such extraordinary sums of money. Having their lives constantly threatened resulted in sleep deprivation and a pervasive inner anxiety. I had that dream again last night. Exactly the same? He nodded. The car becomes a part of the towering clouds on the horizon. It's almost horrific. There must be a way to identify the car. It might unlock the rest of your memories. Patch checked the park and then the street entrance. He now wore the 38, fully loaded, in the holster even when he slept. Too much time had passed and Newton had not exited the post office. We're going in there. Maybe Newton took the money, or somebody got to him. They crossed the busy street and were up the stairs quickly, patched open the heavy door and looked straight ahead. A man and a woman were in line at the counter, but the empty box area concerned him. 
Patch took her hand and they walked the length of the post office lobby. This is not good, he said as they reached the box. I watched that door the whole time. Is there another exit? He looked at the huge window to his right. And he's got the only key. As he turned, Guy Bannister stormed from the back room. Bannister's reddened face indicated he had been drinking. His eyes were set on Patch. Are you out of your mind? He pushed Patch against the boxes and held him. You don't hand out this key to some flunky kid. I'm being followed. What the hell do you think they're paying you for? Jesus Christ, if this ever got back, they'd take you out. But we were watching him, said Sherry. Bannister ignored her and hovered within inches of Patch's face. You owe me. You hear me, Patch? You owe me. He slammed the brass key into Patch's hand and squeezed hard enough to hurt his knuckles. Then he headed back and slammed the door. It's 100% right, said Patch. Outside the window, Bannister and Bill, the overweight intelligence agent from Roselli's party, headed away on foot with two Cubans down the sidewalk. They disappeared around the building. Bill was the one with the gun spinning on the table. Apparently, Mr. Bannister is working with the intelligence boys in the exiles, or at least one of them. Patch returned with her to the post office box. He opened the box and removed the manila envelope. Are you going to open it, Patch? Outside. Patch checked the bulging rear tire. Maybe the tire still had problems from Argon. What do you see, Patch? She asked from inside the car. We have to look at it later. It certainly seems drivable. We'll need good wheels. Sounds like a song from the 50s. Then he split the envelope with his index finger once he was safely inside the Impala. Enclosed with another $2,000 was a typewritten letter from Mr. Jim Pearl. He wanted to meet Patch for a Labor Day evening dinner at the Cabana Moda Hotel, Bon Viant Room in Dallas, Texas. More important was the underlying message on the second page, which was marked Urgent. Urgent, Saturday, August 31st, 1963. Proceed south to Galveston. Oswald activity at the home of Robert McEwen, 45 I Street, Bayside, Texas, next to Galveston. Between 8 and 11 a.m., listen and photograph. Patch tucked the money back inside the envelope. That was a stupid move hiring that kid. We can't second guess it, Patch. We're just lucky Bannister was watching. I suppose you're right. It's like what Jack said in Miami. Miami? I just remember Jack driving a truck to a huge hotel in Miami. He went by the name of LaRue. Then we met Rosselli and some other important men upstairs. They were listening to Caruso. I don't understand how I got to be meeting with them. Keep thinking about it, Patch. These things are going to fully come back to you. She studied the letter. Maybe we should just tell Jim Pearl we've had enough. We want out of this. I don't think, especially with all this money involved, that you're going to tell that to these people. She nodded. This thing with Oswald, a.k.a. Hedell, trying to get a job up there at the mental hospital. Patch started the car and left it running. They won't get the tape of Oswald's trip to Clinton and the state hospital till after the weekend. Patch, I still think they wanted to frame Oswald. Say he was institutionalized at the hospital. Maybe. It's clear he's being manipulated by Howard and locally by Shaw. Maybe Bishop. There may be somebody in there that he needs to get to. Kill? No, Oswald isn't a killer. He's sneaky and cagey and a bullshitter. 
Maybe someone with information is passing through there. Patch pulled onto the road. He does what he needs to do and then quits. Like he did when he worked for that coffee company on Magazine Street here in the city. Gets a job at the hospital, has a presence there, then this guy Howard or Shaw or any of them could say he was a patient there. Patch looked at her for a few seconds. They could say he had mental problems. Yes, they've got him working both sides. I think that's for some specific purpose. Whether it goes beyond is sheer speculation. Elba's Garage, 618 through 19 Magazine Street in Wallens, Louisiana, August 29, 1963, 1.45 p.m. What seems to be the problem, sir? asked the owner of the garage. We've had a problem with the rear tire since up in Oregon, a plug. We seem to be losing air. He walked around the Impala, top down, and stooped to the tire. Then he ran his finger around the outside. How many miles you put on since then? Several thousand. Probably just normal leakage, but we can check for bubbles. Check it, they answered in unison. You're welcome to use the soda machines, or you can go down to Martin's Cafe if you want some solid food. Thanks. He was about to call one of his men when he looked at the open back seat. Then he leaned over the edge. He turned around. Where did you get that pamphlet? The communist guy was handing them out. Come on, he said as he walked back across the cement. That's Lee. He used to be in here all the time when he worked at Riley Coffee. He worked at 544 in the Balta building. No communist in there. How well did you know Lee? asked Sherry. He was hard to know. He had thumbed through magazines and occasionally talked. The last time I saw him, he said he'd be working with NASA, where the gold is. How long for the tire? Twenty minutes. Anybody else with him? asked Sherry. Funny you should ask. I saw him handed a white envelope from, well, I can't tell you who, a couple times. He always had a crease in his pants, you know, he was neat. Yet at the coffee company, he was supposed to be an oiler. How do you pull that one off? That's weird, she said. Hey, come back here in 20 minutes. We'll check the tire. Thanks. They walked away from the car and into the area with the Coke machines. She held his arm. Patch, that's important information. You need to include that in the next tape. It'll be in there, sweetness. McWillie said he was psychotic. Au contraire. Mr. Oswald seems to have a wide circle of friends. Someone sat in a 1959 Chevy across the street. Our friend is back. Don't look. Is he alone? I believe he is. I talked myself into thinking he was gone. We have to leave in the middle of the night for Galveston. Whoever he is, he appears to be watching us alone. I wish he'd just go away. Chapter 26 Robert McEwen Residence, 1st Street, Bayside, Texas, Saturday, August 31st, 1963, 9.15 a.m. Galveston Island's panorama touched the sky along the coast. Patch stopped near the beach so they could hear the waves break on the berm. Serenity settled in as Sherry rested her head on his shoulder. I wish we could just stay here, Patch. He nodded. No more surveillance, no more Castro problems, no more P.O. boxes. What about the cash, he asked, looking into her eyes. She raised her brows and smiled. Thirty-five thousand in the bank. They knew you'd be up to the task, Patch. Do you remember anything you had to do during the Bay of Pigs? Only what I've been told, Ferry flying me in, going after Sanchez, but I don't remember. Did you hear the way Ferry blames Kennedy for not sending in air cover? 
wasn't just blame, she said. You're right. He hates Kennedy, and so do some of the Cubans. She stuck her head out the window and inhaled. Ah, fresh air. He pulled her back inside. I almost wish we didn't have to drive up to Dallas. She checked her watch. We need to go wait for Roswell. I wonder what they have him doing this morning. Patch turned the Impala into a residential coastal community and parked under a clump of trees up the street from McEwen's spacious home. It waited for nearly half an hour before a white Ford cruised smoothly by them and stopped along the road near the house. He placed the headphones over his ears and turned on the tape recorder. Cherry readied the camera. A distinguished Latin-looking man in a blue suit and Lee Oswald in a short-sleeved shirt walked up the drive toward the house. Two men holding coffee cups peered out the picture window. A woman in a negligee passed behind them. Oswald knocked on the front door. Patch aimed the amplifier. Sherry snapped several long-range photos. A dark-haired man opened the front door. My name is Lee Oswald. I've finally found you. You're McEwen, are you not? Yes. Patch twisted the audio gain higher. The tape recorder reel spun around as Oswald spoke. Well, I've looked for you for quite a while, but I'm not sure that you are McEwen. I understand you can supply any amount of arms. Who told you that? Guns? asked Patch. He's asking about guns. I'm pretty sure that you can do it, said Oswald. We're thinking about having a revolution in El Salvador. El Salvador? Yes, it's such a small country it would be easy to do. The man's voice became strained. I tell you right now, I'm on probation. And I said I'm not about to get mixed up in no damn arms of any kind. Not anymore. I'm in enough trouble as it is. I won't give you nothing. Patch adjusted the amp as Oswald kept babbling. You can make all this money, Mr. McEwen. I said I'm not interested in money. I'm married now. I'm working. I'm trying to do right. And I don't want to get mixed up in anything like that. So that's that. Have a good day. But Mr. McEwen... My wife doesn't know anything of this. She doesn't know that I was mixed up in all this mess, so goodbye. This is Mr. Hernandez. Glad to know you. I've heard a lot about you. That's all in the past. Goodbye. Oswald and Hernandez headed back to the car, but Patch could still hear McEwen and his friend as he closed the door. Sam, ain't this one hell of a mess. Mac, don't mess with them. I ain't gonna mess with them. Sherry hit his arm and Patch looked up. Patch, Oswald's going back to the house. Patch kept the tape running as Oswald knocked again. McEwen stepped outside this time. Mac, would you do me a favor? And it won't involve you in any way. I can give you $10,000 if you can get me four rifles. I have the money right here in my pocket. Look, pal, I said no. I would prefer the 300 Savage Automatics with a telescopic sight. Patch turned to her. He wants automatic rifles? McEwen thought for a second. What do you want with four rifles? You can't do nothing with a revolution with four rifles. If you get them for me, I would surely appreciate it. I will give you 10000 if you can get those four rifles. Again, McEwen paused and looked skyward before he spoke again. No way! Like I just told you, I'm not getting involved in no kinds of arms. Hell, if you want rifles, you can go down to Sears and Robux and buy them. You can get rifles at any hardware store. Why do you have to come to me to get them? Oswald looked him in the eye. You are being very uncooperative and rude. 
There's no reason for you and me to be talking anymore. I'm not going to fool with any arms whatsoever. None whatsoever. Oswald and Hernandez returned to the car. Pat shut off the recorder, then he and Sherry looked at each other. McEwen wants nothing to do with getting rifles for Oswald. He says he can buy them at Sears. I agree with McEwen, said Sherry. You can buy those guns anywhere. Oswald said he was in a revolution in El Salvador. But that El Salvador story wasn't credible. Patch waited as Oswald and Hernandez left in the Ford. Why ask for those rifles? He's being told to do all these things, Patch. Something isn't right here. Audio recording, three and a half inch reel, August 31st, 1963. This is Lemon. Oswald incredibly offered Mr. Robert McEwen in a Bayside, Texas, $10,000 for four automatic rifles. I do not know where Oswald would get $10,000, nor would he say why he was working in a revolution in El Salvador. It should be noted that although I suspect McEwen had done this type of work in the past, he was emphatic in telling Oswald he wanted nothing to do with selling guns. Lemon out. Chapter 27 Cabana Moda Hotel, Bon Viant Room, Dallas, Texas, Sunday, September 1st, 1963, 8 p.m. Two waitresses pulled the sunshade chains and opened the window to the city lights. Sherry wore a green evening dress and a white sweater. She had just a touch of blue-green eyeshadow, and her pinned-up hair gave her an elegance Patch had never seen. She held Patch's hand across the table. Do you know this is the first time I've seen you in a tie, Patch? How do I look? He said as he adjusted his thin black tie. In a white shirt and a blazer with patches on the sleeve, you look like a college professor. Good, I could use the credibility. I'm going to ask Pearl to take us out of this operation. I've reached my limit. I don't think he'll listen. We'll see. I think this is Pearl coming into the restaurant. She turned as the man with glasses and a beige ten-gallon hat carried a maroon briefcase to the table. He had a few words with the maitre d', laughed, and then walked over to the table. Good evening, lemon and lime. Good evening. Patch stood and shook his hand. Pearl kissed Sherry's hand. You two are already here. That's good. Yes, sir. Actually, Mr. Pearl, it's Jim. Jim. Jim, we're happy to be out of New Orleans. Please sit down. He slid into the red upholstered booth, flipping his lighter, and lit a cigarette. Exhaling, he signaled the waiter and made a drinking gesture, pointed at his own drink, and held up two fingers. The waiter nodded without even approaching the table. Mr. Pearl, this is getting very dangerous. Both of us have been talking. We want out. Pearl's wrinkled face did not move. Then he produced a fixed smile. I don't think you understand, Patch. You don't get out of this until they tell you you're out of this. Patch's face froze with a look of incredulity. Seems like we don't have much of a choice, said Sherry. No, ma'am, you don't. Now that aside, I guess you're wondering what old Jim Pearl's name is doing in your P.O. box. Patch shrugged his shoulders. I only have my instructions. Patch nodded. So you have instructions for us. Lemon and lime. The waiter set down identical ginger ales in front of Patch and Sherry. Patch looked over and then at the drinks. What's the plan, Jim? Well, Pearl leaned to his left and popped the brass locks on the burgundy leather briefcase. Then he lifted out a clean-cut bundle of cash. Who do we have to kill? asked Patch, chuckling. 
Pearl's voice was stern and direct. I told you, do as you're told. There's 10,000 here. That's incredible, said Shari. 10 grand is 10 grand. Pearl put the cash in the maroon valise and zipped it shut. He handed the valise to Patch. They have placed multiple instructions in the valise. I'm not privy to those orders. Now, I do have one item that I was told to tell you verbally so there'll be no misunderstanding. Patch sipped the ginger ale. And what might that be? Jack Ruby. Who? Jack! You followed him to Texas. Oh, Jack. We know him well. Well, don't know him too well. Stay as far away from Jack as you can. He may even try and contact you. Seemed like a nice guy, said Sherry. Very nervous. What's going on here, Jim? One thing you should remember, he said. You just do what they tell you and you'll be taken care of. It's always worked for me. Pearl squinted, his eyes assuming almost a mystical air. There's a distinct possibility that a high-level operative of the Central Intelligence Agency is going to have a meeting with Mr. Oswald. Or it could be crap. What is it? asked Patch. Pearl held the glass but did not drink. Okay, on September 3rd, 1963, before noon at the Southland Building in Dallas, Texas, Oswald, it is said, will arrive with a Cuban exile, codename Amshell One. Amshell One says Oswald will supposedly meet with CIA contact David Phillips. Oswald is an associate of the CIA. We know that, said Patch. You two are in a different league now. The 10,000 is for this and for another operation coming up. Both put you in harm's way if you get caught. Patch glared at Pearl. Do not film anything at the Southland building. You'll be killed if they see you. Get photographs, but only from the adjacent hotel. Kind of an insurance policy of being above the street. It's also very important if Oswald doesn't show up. It'll tell us we got wrong information and what Amshale 1 is up to. September 3rd, repeated Patch. In the afternoon, check P.O. Box 3066 in the Terminal Annex Building, located at the corner of Houston and Commerce Streets in Dallas. You're supposed to use this box while you're in the Dallas area. Now listen, he pointed at Patch. Oswald uses the same postal annex, and this is important. Stay away from Postmaster Harry Holmes. Holmes is an FBI informant. If you haven't figured it out, your man is also an FBI informant. He brought in two FBI agents as soon as he was arrested in New Orleans. Called the feds in. Pearl stood abruptly. You got all that? September 3rd, just before noon. Right. If he doesn't show up, that's just as important. And Lemon. What? Two things. Don't spend it all in one place and don't get yourself killed. Chapter 28 at the hotel window, Patch carefully adjusted the long-range camera lens diagonally across the street. Why are Oswald and the Cuban meeting with David Phillips of the CIA? I'm scared, Patch, said Sherry. Patch hugged her. I'm sorry I dragged you into this. You didn't know where this was going, and I went willingly. We'll wait here, Sherry. Do what we have to do, and then get the hell out of here. She stared out the window to the street below. This has all been stepped up to a higher level than Lee Oswald just handing out those fake communist pamphlets. Patch nodded. He turned the outer grip and scanned the windows of the 42-story building with his 35-millimeter camera. Then he focused on the sidewalk, 
up to the Southland building's glass entrance door and blue tile facade. Remember, Rosselli said to stay away from Phillips, Hunt, and somebody else. The intelligence boys. Think of it, Patch. They're after you. You must know something if they clipped your memory. I'll follow Mr. Rosselli's advice. Again, he scanned the sidewalk. I think we're safe up here on the 22nd floor. She held his wrist. We'll be safe when we're out of this building. Patch held the camera in his hand. If it's true, who sent Oswald up here? The FBI? Naval Intelligence? The CIA? His connections with the underground? The Cubans or the anti-Castro Cubans? As well as people we don't even know about. I'm not an apathetic person, but I can't believe all this goes on away from the general public. Believe it. Patch set down the camera. Just who the hell is this guy Oswald? Involved with all these characters? He just melds into the next thing. And they're paying us an ungodly amount of money to catalog what he's doing. Patch nodded and sipped the tepid cup of coffee. The New York address is nothing more than a drop-off point. Maybe they forward our reports to somebody else. Somewhere, someone knows how all the pieces fit together. Scary as hell. Pilatus knows more than he's saying. I agree, Pilatus knows a lot, said Patch. But he could merely be a man with problems, I don't know. Yet he seems to parallel everything. All like the tentacles of an octopus. Patch lifted the camera up again and surveyed the traffic. I have 72 exposures on this roll. I have to shoot quickly because I'm sure they'll be going inside the building. Patch again focused on the sidewalk and the Southland entrance. Did you check that map for the Dallas P.O. box? No, not yet, he said, pulling back the zoom. I'll check it. How long have we been here, Patch? Patch placed the camera on the side table. Too long. This whole thing is bogus. Oh, now they know, she said. Pearl said they needed to know if this was a false report. Patch nodded. Let them find out why Phillips, Oswald, and Amshell 1 didn't show up. Sherry turned toward the window. Patch, the white station wagon parked down on the street. Damn. Patch, his eyes open wide, popped the camera case and leaned on the air conditioner. He quickly snapped photos in motion as the bull-necked team leader from New Orleans, dressed in a blue suit, exited the passenger's side. Three men in dark suits fanned out and into the Southland Center. Four men in street clothes headed toward the hotel entrance below. Then he stuck the camera back inside the case and stood. They think we're in there, Sherry, he said as his heart pounded. We need to get out of here right now. I pray they don't see the Impala. We parked it on the damn street. Patch opened the hotel room door and they hurried into the hall. The elevators were only a few feet away. We can't just run out front. I would say we have about five minutes. These people are professional. The elevator hovered between the first and second floors. Down the stairs, Sherry. Patch, they all moved like soldiers. As they scampered down the concrete cast stairway, Patch tried to anticipate their next move. They would quickly move back to the car. Because Bullneck and the others knew Patch and Sherry were in the area, but were unaware they had been in an adjacent hotel looking over the Southland Center. Sherry opened the first floor lobby side door and they stumbled into an alley. Five parking meters away from the street, the Impala faced the opposite direction from the Southland Center. Patch leaped into the passenger seat and Sherry started the engine. 
He looked out the rear plastic window, but could not see the station wagon clearly. In the mirror, as Sherry pulled slowly into the road, the men climbed back in the station wagon. What's happening, Patch? They're heading away. Well, we are in that part of the ten grand. P.O. Box 3066, Terminal Annex Building, corner of Houston and Karma Streets, Dallas, Texas, Tuesday, September 3rd, 1963, 3.30 p.m. Patch moved up the post office steps. In his hand was the brass key from the envelope Pearl had given him at the Cabana Motor Hotel last night. He opened the heavy door and checked ahead. A bald man closed his post office box and, and tucked his mail under his arm. A young girl with red hair piled her mail on the table against the far wall. She threw a few flyers into the metal wastebasket behind the desk. Patch stepped inside and followed the shaded green numbers on the glass encased metal frame boxes. To his left, he sidestepped with the ascending numbers until he found box 3066. He turned the key. The familiar manila envelope was now arched inside the box. He slid it out and was about to head back outside to Sherry. He hesitated when Lee Oswald entered the post office. Patch drifted back to where the woman had thrown away the flyers. The wooden table had certified and registered mail slips and trays next to the gray slab wall. He pulled out a conglomeration of junk mail from the trash barrel. His heart pounded. He casually pretended to read junk mail as Oswald's shoes clicked against the floor tiles. In his peripheral vision, Patch noted Oswald passed by him toward a box no more than 20 feet away. Patch watched Oswald out of the corner of his eye. The slim Oswald, hair neatly trimmed, opened the box. He pulled out a white legal-sized letter and several smaller pieces of mail. Oswald then closed his box and walked by Patch with the white envelope in his hand. He studied Patch's face with his gray eyes as if he were memorizing it for an exam. His dark stubble indicated he had not shaved for a while. He squinted, twisted his lips, but retraced his steps across the post office. A deep anxiety now settled over Patch. He listened to Oswald's shoes echo off the walls. The sound faded, and Oswald exited through the heavy doors up front. He never looked back. Patch's heart kept thumping as he wondered why they had set him up in the same post office as Oswald. Maybe it was the way Oswald had looked him over. He had a deep, unsettled feeling about Oswald. Patch opened the manila envelope and slipped out a crisp yellow sheet with a typewritten message. Lemon, return to New Orleans. Before you leave Dallas, an 8mm camera is waiting for you at the department store, camera department, at Main and St. Paul Streets in Dallas. Instructions for proper use of the camera are in your New Orleans box. Shoot the film we want and it's worth the $10,000. It's critical that you remain a distance from Oswald at all time. Oh sure, I blew that one. More money lined the inside of the envelope. He placed the paper back in the envelope. For another few minutes he waited just to be sure Oswald had left the area. Then he too exited the building. Beyond the next block, Sherry opened the Impala door. She stepped onto the sidewalk and ran toward Patch. They met at the corner of the post office building. Did he see you? She asked in a low voice. Then you saw him. Yes. Scrutinized my face. Oh, no. In the manila envelope? The line of work that he's in, I'm sure he has to be aware of what's around him. He got a white envelope and some other mail. 
and now he's in Dallas, she said. I think he'll be wherever they send him. What was in our envelope, he asked. They want us to pick up an 8mm camera at a local department store and then head back to New Orleans. They want us to film something for 10 grand. It must be risky. You know it and I know it. Across the busy street on a park bench, Lee Oswald watched the traffic. Patch took her hand and started back to the Impala. Don't look now, but Oswald is on the bench across from the post office. A green and white bus pulled from the curb, and when it sped away in a cloud of black exhaust, like a magician, Oswald had left the bench. Patch watched the bus's taillights turn red at the next intersection. I don't think him seeing me means anything right now, but if he sees me again, he may put it all together. Hopefully that won't happen. I had a feeling, that same unsettled feeling when I saw him up close. I can't tell you why. Chapter 29 Lake Pontchartrain, Bettico Creek, Louisiana, Thursday, September 5th, 1963. Near Bettico Creek, from atop a hill, and within a mass of hanging vines and Spanish moss, Patch steadied the Bell and Howell camera on a log. Sherry gripped the metal canteen and with a bandana wiped the sweat off his brow. In the grassy field, soldiers in combat fatigues poured out of bulky military trucks. Patch filmed many of them carrying machine guns. Another group had mortars and bazookas. A thick foliage swamp lay beyond the field. Small arms fire popped across the field as the soldiers dived into the grass. Sherry whispered in his ear when the machine gun muzzles ignited orange. That's live shooting, Patch. Patch kept filming and did not respond even when the mortars exploded a mere hundred feet away. Then he stopped the film and turned back to the log. He wound the camera again. These people are well trained. Sounds like we're in the middle of a war, she said, blocking her ears at the next explosion. A group of men ran past them, 50 yards away in the field. Patch lifted the camera and panned toward the Louisiana road sign. Five men lingered near a jeep as other troops darted in the area beyond. Guy Bannister turned in front of the jeep. That's Bannister. To the left, Lee Oswald lingered next to a group of soldiers. In his fatigues, he appeared to look at the camera. Oswald, that same stupid smirk. Sherry spoke in a low voice in Patch's ear. This is making sense now. Obviously, Oswald works for the government. Maybe, said Patch as he stopped filming. Against the government? Don't know. Patch lifted the canteen. The water had a metal taste. He leaned against the tree until Sherry advised him Phillips had moved into the open. Unlike the others, Phillips wore street clothes and held a 45 caliber handgun. Patch cranked the bell and howl and then pushed the shutter button. More soldiers fired their weapons. He recognized the tall man in fatigues but could not access his name. This time they shot up targets in the shape of a man nailed to various trees, and the echoes reverberated across the swamp. Another man in fatigues ripped off one of the targets off the tree so they could see the bullet holes. David Ferry, said Patch as he kept filming. Either he cut his hair with hedge clippers or he's wearing a wig, and a bad one at that. Then Oswald aimed his rifle at the target. Patch counted seven shots into the cutout. One of the soldiers marched toward the swamp, but Patch focused on the man with the glasses speaking with two men next to a telephone pole. Unlike most of the men, he wore white chinos and a white shirt. Look how he's dressed. 
intelligence officer of some kind, she said. Patch pulled out the amplifier rod and slipped the headphones over his head. He listened carefully for at least a half a minute as they talked about munitions and Castro. The second man called him by name, Tracy Barnes. They're talking about the valley getting low-frequency Motorola transceivers to David Ferry and Clay Shaw. Walkie-talkies with a quarter mile of range. More stuff about Castro and guns. It's a war going on down here. Nobody knows about it. For sure. He mentioned Jack Ruby and McWillie and how they used to get guns to fight Batista. He unscrewed the canteen cap and gulped more water. Then he handed it to Sherry. That explains the guns in Jack's trunk. Last July, Barnes had some guy named Morris in Maryland order guns. Sonny's surplus in Townsend, Maryland. Manlicker Cacano, 7.35 surplus rifles. Bolt action, a whole bunch of them. Now they had David Ferry fly the guns somewhere. I didn't catch it. New Orleans? Okay, Ferry flew them to New Orleans. Patch, there's more to Ferry than meets the eye. The point of those guns was to alter the forepiece of each rifle. They dismantled them so they could be hidden and reassembled quickly. Sounds nefarious. I'll note that in my tape. Wait, they're moving out. On the Perende Road, right where we have the Impala. He looked up at her and ripped off the headphones. We have to get out of here right now. No argument here. He handed the amplifier and the other camera to her. Then he grabbed the 8mm. I need to rewind this film and put it in the canister. Check through the binoculars, Sherry. She kept the glasses to her eyes as he flipped a switch and wound the film back into the camera canister. Where are they? Rounding everyone up. Apparently they're going to march out. Oswell did tell Brengear in the clothing store that he trained men. I guess he was serious. Okay, they're marching on the road, Patch. Patch unscrewed the cover, lifted the yellow and black Kodak canister from the camera, then re-screwed the cover. Okay, let's go. He put the canister in his pocket and took her hand as they bent down. Hunched over, they moved into thicker brush. Memories of a battle in plains over a swampy area entered his thoughts. He envisioned men landing on a white sandy beach. The grassy ground moistened as they veered back toward the clump of trees where he had parked the Impala. Although the woods now appeared quiescent, there was enough firepower within that small training group to kill him and Sherry quickly. He pulled her up the grassy incline toward the twisted trees at the break. As they neared the crest, he spotted the red impala a hundred yards down the road shoulder. They trotted deliberately on the gritty road toward the red Chevy convertible. He opened the trunk and threw in the equipment without securing it in the suitcase. He started the car and immediately left a dust trail behind as he continued down the road's gradual incline. I say we head straight. Doesn't that lead to Pontchartrain? He took the wrinkled map from her hands. It's an unpaved road along a lake. There's also a road leading away from the swamp where they're training. They were going the other way. I hope so. I sure hope so. The Riverfront Hotel New Orleans, Louisiana, Thursday, September 5th, 1963, 10.30 p.m. Are you okay with dropping that film in the mailbox, she asked. Patch wrapped a towel around his waist inside the bathroom. Hemming, that was the name of the big guy back in the training camp. Who is he? Patch shook his head. Some kind of soldier of fortune, I don't remember. All on film, she said. The main thing is that movie film is mailed to Austin. The knock on the wooden door was swift and hard. 
patch tightened the white towel around his waist and another around his neck. He fluffed his hair with the towel and approached the door. Yeah, the muffled voice sound familiar. Lemon, it's Pilatus. It's urgent. Patch picked up the thirty-eight off the bureau. Then he undid the chain and unlocked the door. Pilatus's hair hung in clumps and his clothes were dirt smudged. He slumped as he walked by Patch's gun. How did you find us? That's a dumb question. Furthermore, what does it matter? Well, he stuck out his neck at the last part of his question. What do you want? asked Patch. Pilatus rotated his chin around and smiled. Then he looked at Patch. You're lucky you're still alive. Sorry to disappoint you. Pilatus squinted and looked around. Let me tell you what I already know myself. You need to get away from all your contacts, especially Oswald. We heard Oswald twice on the radio, said Sherry. He's been on Channel 6, WDSU. They filmed him on the street three other times. I just spoke with him one-to-one. He doesn't get it. Says he's a Marxist, said Patch. Pilatus' face looked as flat as a cast-iron frying pan. The radio guy, Stucky, went up to the Magazine Street address to get Oswald to be on the air a second time. Oswald answered in his T-shirt and military fatigues. He's instructing the exiles, my friends. We saw him at Pontchartrain, said Patch. Oh, Christ, you two need to disappear. I may just leave the country. Exactly why, asked Patch as Sherry joined him. With a dumb grin, Pilatus shook his head. Then he sat on the flowery green chair and spread his arms over the chair arms. Oh, I don't think knowing everything is necessarily a good thing, Lemon. He leaped up and crossed the room. Then he peered around the drapes. We haven't heard anyone, Pilatus. Pilatus stepped from the drapes. You don't know that. As a matter of fact, you don't know what your actions have spawned. Patch, still wrapped in a towel, approached. Just tell us. Pilatus's brown eyes glassed over as if somebody had dunked him in the river. Your country. Be careful, Lemon. If you can get out of this, then be careful. They think they can supersede the Constitution, and they probably can. Nothing will mean anything after the end. The end of what? He walked toward the door. Just tell us something, said Sherry. The end of what? You know I'm baffled, confounded, as to who engineered your little spy program. Whoever it is has shielded himself perfectly. That's admirable. That's what it is. What do you know? asked Patch. They're looking for you, Lemon and Lime, because the word is out that you two might not be in their best interest. Once they get to you, they'll never let you go. They want answers. He opened the door and looked both ways down the hotel corridor. Then he ran from the room. Patch saw him take the stairs. He returned to the room and locked the door. He's right. We can't get out of this. And they will kill us if we try to get out, Patch. What we saw down that training camp was bizarre. Everyone is pretending to be someone else, especially Oswald. The government certainly wants to ask me questions, questions I don't have answers to. If Pilatus could find us, who's to say the others can't find us? Patch picked up the thirty-eight. So much for getting some sleep. The Lafayette Station, Postal Annex, New Orleans, Louisiana, Friday, September 6, 1963, 9 a.m. 
Patch stepped up the stairs of the Lafayette Annex with a trepidation he rarely felt. Pilatus's warnings last night and the observations at the Pontchartrain training camp had him questioning how they could get out of the Oswald surveillance. Being on the run for the rest of their lives was not a pleasant prospect. He opened the doors and checked the post office boxes before he went inside. The lingering image of Lee Oswald staring at him had him tense. He opened the box and dragged out the next manila envelope. Then he pushed the box shut, turned the key, and quickly headed back to the park. As he emerged on the stone stairs, the morning breeze blew back his hair. Sherry stood at the bench next to the park shrubs and statue. He waited at the curb as a pickup truck and a Ford Falcon moved by at high speed. Then he crossed over into Lafayette Square. Once away from the street, he opened the manila envelope as he walked. Plane tickets to O'Hare Airport in Chicago under the name Sam Cronin and Darlene Schuster were inside. Texas motor vehicle licenses under those names were also included. What do you have, Patch? Phony driver's licenses and tickets to Chicago. He turned with her on the crushed stone path. They sat on the wood-slatted bench. Patch removed the usual typewritten yellow paper. Lemon, September 6, 1963. Fly to Chicago, 11.17 a.m. TWA. Chicago. Take a Greyhound from the airport to City Terminal on West Randolph. A 1959 Bloom White Oldsmobile station wagon will be at level 4 of the parking garage next to the theater. The car will have a gold water for president and a scenic sticker on it. The keys are under the passenger seat. We need extensive photos of Thomas Arthur Valley's apartment at Paulina and Wilson. Check for possible weapons. Valley was in the Marines with Lee Oswald in Japan. Works at the TTP Lithbat, located at 625 West Jackson Boulevard in Chicago. Also, need photos of Valley and his Ford Falcon. At 4 p.m., meet Richard Kane at 1045 North Reno. Urgent. Find out what Kane knows about Oswald and Valley. Patch then pulled out another $2,000. 20 $100 bills from the manila envelope. He looked up slowly. The obvious question is, why Chicago? The morning sun flickered through the tree branches. Sherry shook her head and they followed the path through the gardens toward the impala. This money, if we make it out of this patch, and I do think we will, we'll be set for life, she nodded. I remember as a kid, being at the base in Japan, I think I was there, I was hit by a baseball. There was military equipment all around. I was just a kid. She held his arm. Patch, it's coming back to you. I think so. I got my nickname because I wore a patch after the accident. What's your full name? He shrugged his shoulders, but then he smiled. I'm not sure. She got inside the Impala and Patch slipped behind the steering wheel. The typed note mentioned Ferenzo Benucci. Must be a friend of Rosselli. Any friend of Rosselli, Patch, is a friend of yours. Chapter 30. Greyhound Terminal, West Randolph Street, Chicago, Illinois. Friday, September 6th, 1963, 12.06 p.m. Patch carried the red suitcase through the Greyhound Terminal's open glass doors. He looked around the Chicago street as the warm air hit his face. Only a hundred yards away, silhouetted in the sun, the bright red letters of a park sign jutted near the Hotel Sherman's ground facade. 
casting a shadow onto West Randolph Street. They passed a cocktail lounge as the aromas of fresh food from a restaurant next to the parking garage migrated above the sidewalk. You want something to eat, Patch? Maybe we should just get that Oldsmobile first. They approached the garage's perforated white facade and black marquee. Morning special, five dollars. He kept his hand against her back as they climbed to the fourth level. In the first row on the outside wall, a sleek new Oldsmobile with dealer plates glistened in the light. They looked at each other and then crossed the concrete. Patch opened the passenger door and the smell of a new car filtered out. He reached under the seat and retrieved several keys. Sherry slid inside as he placed the suitcase in the trunk. She unfolded the map they had purchased at the airport. West Washington will bring us to Paulina and Wilson. Valley will be at work. We'll take the pictures of him, the car, and then get out. What is this man doing with weapons? They want to know about weapons. He backed around and pulled the ticket from the visor. Then he pinched a $5 bill from his wallet. He turned and the tires produced a high-pitched sound on the concrete. I was just thinking about Pilatus last night, she said. Who do you think he really works for? Unknown. The funny thing is that no one can put it all together because everyone is hiding in their own little compartment. The car dipped near the exit booth. He paid the attendant and turned onto the city street. To his right, the Greyhound Terminal's large racing dog logo and huge bus letters were situated below the Hotel Sherman. We'll go to Valley's apartment and make sure he's not there. After that, we head to his work address. He checked his watch, and then the restaurant. Patch maneuvered the Oldsmobile into a curb space beyond the next block from Valley's tenement. He tucked the 38 in the side holster under his lightweight jacket and leaned in the window. She handed the edict's camera to him. Stay right here, Sherry. Keep the doors locked. This should only take a few minutes. Please be careful, Patch. He squeezed her wrist. I'll be right back. Patch casually walked down the sidewalk. Chicago measured 2,000 miles from Oswald and all the nonsense that had taken place along the Gulf. He meticulously tracked the numbers on each tenement's worn wood fascia board until he reached number 35. Patch traipsed across the grass clumps and climbed the gray slatted porch of a three-story wood building. Ruffled green curtains covered the door glass. He jiggled open the door and stepped into the cooler hall. Above an aluminum mailbox, tenant names were scrawled on adhesive tape in black ink. Valley's name, in shaky permanent ink, indicated an upstairs apartment. Patch checked the yard and then bolted up the stairs. Once on the landing, he knocked on the peeling painted door, rattling the tarnished brass numbers. Hello, Mr. Valley, hello. He gazed downstairs and knocked again. He twisted the steel doorknob from side to side. Can I help you, mister? Asked a bulldog lady in a washed out red and white sundress at the bottom of the stairs. Her dark eyes darted as she spoke. Patch turned quickly. I'm from the city. Mr. Valley was applying for benefits. What benefits? She barked and placed her shoe on the stairs. That's private, ma'am. You don't look like no city worker. She started up the stairs. Wouldn't be breaking into one of my rooms, would you, mister? 
What are you, crazy? asked Patch. We need to know what's going on in there. You FBI? Patch pulled open his jacket, exposing his gun. Listen, Mrs. Gallo, I was breaking in. Well, at least you're honest. What did he do now? He and the guys he had over here. Oh, those crazy Cubans. They play their Spanish crap on the radio. And they carry lots of guns in there. Keep telling me they're going to burn the place down. We know that. That's my job, is to get pictures. All right, she said, pulling a chain with at least 20 keys on the ring from her dress pocket. I don't want it said that Viola Gallo let someone in one of her rooms. My mouth is zipped, Mrs. Gallo. Sure. She amazingly found the correct key and quickly opened the door to a cramped room with a green slip-covered couch, one lamp minus a shade, and a portable TV. A white refrigerator and a yellow Formica counter butted up against a round wood table. Patch took three pictures but saw nothing suspicious. Any names on those Cubans? Spanish names, who knows? There's a storage closet in the bedroom. Let's take a look. You got any identification? She demanded. In this neighborhood, I go incognito. Right. The neighborhood has gone to hell in a handbasket. She opened the bedroom door. The frayed yellow window shades glowed in the sunlight. Bedclothes were crumpled at the bottom of the mattress, and the bedroom lamp also had no shade. Where's this closet? Right here, she said, opening a smaller white door. Patch popped his head inside, and his stomach flooded at the cache of weapons. Thousands of rounds of ammunition and M1 military rifles. Four rifles had telescopic sights. What is it, she asked. Look for yourself, said Patch, snapping his fourth photo. I knew these bastards were up to no good. Four of them keep coming up here. Valley is insane. He's got some kind of mental problem. Mental problem and these guns? Great combination. Look, Mrs. Gallo, we're going to leave the guns here because we're going to raid this apartment while the Cubans are here. I ain't going to say nothing. Patch heard some bounding up the steps. Hey, man, who's in there? Asked a high-pitched voice with a Spanish accent. She pointed toward the closet and Patch ducked inside. Then he closed the door, but he could hear them outside. I heard a noise up here, but I guess I was wrong. Valley won't like you inside his place, lady. I thought I was being robbed, numbnuts. Now get out. Valley ain't here. When will he be back? Who the hell knows? Mrs. Gallo slammed the door. Patch cracked open the closet door and waited a few minutes as the voices faded. He crossed the room and stepped into the hall. This time he went down near the rear stairs and exited into a backyard with numerous clotheslines and trash barrels. He quickly vaulted the white fence into an alley. Then he sprinted down the cracked asphalt. He walked around the corner and onto the sidewalk, but he stopped when he did not see the Oldsmobile. Someone or something had prompted Sherry to move that car. Or maybe she had been forced to leave. He ducked behind the brick building to his right. Less than a half a minute later, a blue Chevy approached. Two men sat in the front seat as the car paralleled the sidewalk. The gray-haired man in the passenger seat rested a sawed-off shotgun on the window frame. Patch gripped his handgun. The dark-haired man drove the car. Once the car passed, he stepped into the vacant lot. The red taillights glowed and the car went left at the stop sign. Patch! shouted Sherry from the fence across the lot. She waved her arms. Patch! 
Hatch looked over his shoulder and then sprinted across the weeds. He quickly leaped the chain-link fence. Where did they come from? They didn't recognize the station wagon, but I knew I should get out of here. They moved down into a tenement driveway. Sherry had parked the Oldsmobile in the driveway. Patch ran forward and climbed in the driver's side. She threw the keys to him. One guy had a sawed-off shotgun. I saw it, said Patch as he started the car. Then he backed up. He looked both ways. We need to get over the valley. All clear, she said. Why have they driven all the way up here, and how did they know we were here? I don't know the answer to that, growled Patch. You don't carry a gun like that unless you're going to shoot it. What about Valley's apartment? The place is an ammo dump. Patch turned the car at 180 degrees, and he's got Cubans involved up here, just like down south. That's why they wanted us snooping around here. I have pictures of all of it. How did you get in there, Patch? Did you break the door down? Patch smiled and then flung back his head. The lady thought I was an FBI agent. Apparently the FBI's been around here too. Maybe the FBI's driving that car. Unbelievable. Robert Kincaid, FBI. She moved closer to him and held his arm. Is that your name? I do believe it is, he said taking a turn. Valley works at the TTP Litzblatt, 635 Jackson Boulevard. Let's meet this arms expert. Inside a red brick multi-story building near the Jackson exit to the Northwest Expressway, the noisy printing company, TTP Lisblatt, reeked of ink fumes and solvents in the warm air. He had told Sherry to remain in the hall and check for the Chevy. Patch stepped up to the counter. Excuse me, does Thomas Arthur Valley work here? The nimble guy with the leather apron stared at him and raised his index finger. He disappeared into the side room. Almost immediately, a stocky man in a beige sweater and black glasses stomped up to the counter. Can I help you, sir? Looking for Thomas Arthur Valley. Why? I think I just hit his car. He drives a Ford Falcon, right? How do I know what Valley drives? He looked Patch over. Stay right here. I'll get him, but watch it. He's a touchy bastard. The tension made him sweat, and he wiped his forehead. Removing his jacket meant exposing the 38. Sherry nodded from the open doorway across the hall. The stocky man trailed a pug-faced, mean little man with a slightly receding hairline and a flat-top haircut. Did you hit my car? Cool it, Valley, said the stocky man. I can handle my own problems, Dave. Then he turned toward Patch as the shutter clicked in the hallway. Come on, let's go check it. And I'll tell you, if you wreck my car... Patch said nothing. Sherry disappeared when they passed through the open doorway. New York license plate? Yeah! They exited the building and Valley marched ahead of him into the parking lot. You from New York? That's none of your business! Then he stopped. Wait! How do you know it's my car? You left some kind of pamphlet with your name on it. He furrowed his brow deep enough to cut into his forehead. Then he shook his head. Ow! As the Charter Valley rumbled into the parking lot, Patch pivoted and rounded the building with Sherry trailing behind. Valley headed toward the white Ford Falcon. Sherry scribbled into her notebook. New York, 3110203. Let's go, said Patch. He ran down the sidewalk and backtracked along the building. 
She caught up to him when they entered the adjacent building and walked quickly down the hallway. New York, that is strange. Right, in Chicago. Did you get pictures? I shot 33 on the roll, hon. Good girl. They scurried down the stairs near a water fountain and exited onto a side street. Fifty feet ahead, the Oldsmobile was parked under a small oak tree. Patch unlocked the door and they got inside. He checked the mirror on the side streets. And this crazy man valley is in cahoots with the Cubans? Figure that one out. He checked his watch and grabbed the map. Almost four. Where's the Adonis restaurant from here? She folded the map and turned it over. Take a right up here at the lights. Patch looked over his shoulder. I don't see Valley or the Chevy. Now we meet a Mr. Richard Kane, and then get the hell out of here, hopefully. Richard Kane, another one of those interlocking compartments. Plausible deniability. Chapter 31. Adonis Restaurant, 4.06 p.m. Patch sipped the cold water and set the glass back on the white linen tablecloth. Sherry closed her eyes as she sat upright in the restaurant chair. He reached over and held her hand. A slight smile crossed her lips when she opened her eyes. You wish you were home. She nodded. How did you know? Hopefully this is the end of our work. She looked toward the front door. I'm just waiting for the clown with the shotgun to come walking in. Patch nodded as a man with trim dark hair and glasses approached the table. He wore a pricey black suit and a simple red tie and extended his hand before he reached the table. I'm Richard Kane. Good afternoon, said Patch, not quite sure about this guy. Lemon and lime. Yes, Sherry answered. Kane stared at Patch. My people don't even know what this is all about. The waiter circled over to the table. Abruon gin tonic. What can I get for you? Coke is fine, said Sherry. I will have a Coke, said Patch. Vari du vigilo shi il mio telefono surreto. See. First of all, I want to hear it from Johnny himself, and so does my boss. Who told you we'd be here? Kane again fixated on Patch as if he hated his guts. Who the hell do you think you are? Then why don't you clarify it for us, demanded Patch, so we can verify it's legitimate. Kane looked stunned that Patch would challenge him. Regano, he vouches for you, Patch, but I want to hear it from Johnny. I know we called Sam to allow you up here. We want to know about Thomas Arthur Valley, said Patch. I don't give a shit what you want. Then he walked right up to Patch. I want to know if you or anyone else has met with a Negro Secret Service agent named Abraham Bolden. Don't know him, said Patch. What about the Taurus and Vidal? No. Kane squished his mouth as if he were ready to spit out a sour lemon. If Bolden contacts you, I want to know about it. And I will call Gerald A. Bain of the Secret Service to take care of Bolden. You got that name? Gerald A. Bain. No, for Christ's sakes. Abraham Bolden. He stared at Patch with a holy hatred. You stay right here. You're being watched. I'll be right back. Patch turned to Sherry once Kane was around the corner. This was a huge mistake. She held his wrist. Well, we can't exactly leave, Patchy, she said, looking toward the little guy in the turtleneck by the front door. I see him, said Patch. It's like we're poking into the hornet's nest. Kane is making a phone call right now. If it gets hairy, we can call Roselli. 
Kane returned a few minutes later. He faced Patch with his brow creased and his teeth gritted. Listen, asshole. I just called Johnny in Vegas. You better hope he calls back before I've had enough of your happy horse shit regardless of whether he called Sam before. He'll call, said Patch. Who the fuck are you? A man who wants to know about Lee Oswald, a.k.a. A.J. Hedell. Kane hit the table with his clenched fist. That's enough. A simple question, asked Patch as Sherry's mouth dropped. Kane nodded to the guy at the door. Switch, bring our friends upstairs. Yes, sir, Mr. Kane. Sneering, Switch slipped out a little black handgun. He had a gravelly voice. Walk across the restaurant, no sudden moves, up the stairs in the corner. Patch gripped Sherry's clammy hand as they crossed the plush rug. Switch waved the gun toward a carpeted staircase with green striped wallpaper. They ascended in the dimly lit hall to a second floor suite with towering windows surrounded by green velvet drapes overlooking the traffic on North Reno Boulevard. Now what? asked Patch. Three additional men, all with weapons and glum expressions, took positions in front of the inner entrances. Patch looked into Sherry's brown eyes. A stocky hulk in a striped shirt entered through the door on the right. He stared at the rug as he walked and ended up directly in front of Patch. Without flinching, he hit Patch with a devastating right cross, sending him onto the white velour sofa. Sherry screamed and the man threw her to the sofa as Patch's eyes cleared. The guy lifted him into the air. Why are you bothering Mr. Kane? We were instructed to come here. Again, he smacked Patch, and before he realized it, Patch hung over the sofa arm. Who the hell are you, and what do you know about Mexico City? We think you're snooping around what Dick did down there in 61. Patch shook his aching head. Blood flowed down into his mouth. No! Sherry threw her body around him. Kane was back. His dark eyes had no emotion as he glared at Patch and Sherry on the sofa. They don't know nothing. Kane pressed his lips. Let me tell you goons something. All these questions you have, you tell Johnny that I'm heavily involved in checking all these leads, understand? Yeah, said Patch, trying to recover. Here's what I have. Valley has a 1962 Ford Falcon. New York, registration license plate 311ORF. It's registered in New York to the individual you mentioned, Oswald. And Oswald was here last April with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Additionally, you tell Johnny he knows why those Cubans were sent up here. Valley is a nutcase, and we're on it. Patch spoke in a low voice. Okay, Chicago is a long way from Havana, said Kane, grinding his teeth. You listen to me, you want to be. I just talked to Tampa. If I hadn't, you'd be dead now. I worked with Santo back in 1960 trying to poison the son of a bitch Castro. So did Verona. For 200 grand, Johnny got that whole thing going. Johnny is the only reason I called Tampa. So you send your strongman in here and I think he broke my jaw. Kane never apologized. Valley and his Cuban buddies are being funded by Verona. Why is the car registered to Oswald who's in Texas and Louisiana? Asked Sherry. I don't get into the reasons why. Kane and his thugs left through separate doors. Sherry turned to Patch. Patch, we need to get some ice for your jaw. I hate that man. Both stood. I'm all right. Let's get back to New Orleans. She locked arms with Patch and they descended the stairs. 
We're in this thing way over our heads. We can't get out. A rotund man with black hair stepped up to the table. Good afternoon, I am Florenzi Bonucci. You are the owner of the Adonis. He removed a TWA airline ticket holder from his suit pocket. I have your ticket, sweetheart. Tampa, asked Pat. Contact will meet you at the airport and you will be back in New Orleans by the weekend. A limo will now take you to O'Hare. He handed the tickets to Patch and said nothing more as he headed to the front lobby. Now what, Patch? Patch pursed his lips. If it gets us out of town, I'll do what I'm told. George Joannides. George Joannides, a.k.a. Howard, Chief of Psychological Warfare, Central Intelligence Agency. He is front and center funding the GRE from CIA funds back in 1963. Let me fast forward to the 1978 hearings. For your final Jeopardy answer, brought out of retirement, this man was a liaison to the House Committee for the CIA. Of course, it was George Joannides, the man in the middle of the anti-Castro mess, along with a panoply of players. You know, if you're just going about your daily routine, work, family, etc., all of this was long, long ago. And the pile of information is overwhelming. But then again, does the United States exist as a constitutional republic or a fantasy land? I'm Robert P. Fitton. Think about it. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.
chapter 6.